smoking section. Here we are for another episode, a great episode. I'm excited for this episode. Uh, this is season four of Smoking Section Podcast, and we got some heavy hitters this season. Um, one of my favorite people, I've waited for a long time to interview this guy. Uh, our original co-host, Dwayne Hobson, has told me so, <laughs> Dwayne. so many great Dwayne. stories about you. <laughs> <laughs> and so I've been waiting. This guy here, he he used to be the head of Sony Music Nashville, and he has discovered big names like Kenny Chesney, Alabama, Clint Black, Miranda Lambert. He is the reason why you guys hear those kind of artists nowadays. So his name is Joe Galanti. How are you, sir? Good. How are you doing, Marcus? I'm doing fantastic. Again, thank you so much for joining. Um, so let's start out with this. We're going to dive right into this. Sure. Because I tried to do some research on you and this is the thing no one has anywhere where you came from like no one knows where you were born there's nothing your wikipedia page your show had at all all it shows is that you came from new york which we're going to get to <laughs> but the mystery is where is the where is joe galanti born where, 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 let's let's talk about his childhood where what was his childhood like i grew up in queens uh oh, so you uh, are from really, new york <laughs> yeah I mean, and so I, I lived in and around all the parts of Queens and Flushing and Bayside and Jamaica. Astoria was where I primarily spent my time. And so, which is the only other person that anybody knows about from Astoria is Tony Bennett. So I'm in really good company. You're in really good company. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I grew up there. And so uh, I would tell you that I was probably, uh, I used to walk to school and the school was by the 59th Street Bridge. So it kind of gives you a sense of where that was. And now it's where the Silver Cup Studios are, where they did all the Soprano shows were shot there. But at that time, it was just a working class bedroom UN community. I mean, when you when you lived there, uh, my friends were from every part of Europe. Uh, I grew up with Irish, Italians, Greeks, Germans, Polish. Um, it, it was the UN, and people had you know they were either first or second generation coming over from Europe. And uh, the, the house I grew up in was uh, an attached three story home. We were on the first floor. My grandparents were on the second floor, and my god parents were on the third floor. And that wasn't unusual. I mean, I see your face, but yeah. you know, it was multi-generational in those those days. And so when I would go to my friend's house, uh, I would taste food and hear languages uh, that I wouldn't have picked up when I was living in the South. I mean, because right. you know, it truly right. was. It was the right. UN. You know, people would go in and celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Other people would sell, celebrate St. Joseph's Day. I mean, wow. You know, so everybody, you just kind of learned along the way. That sounds like a great community because it's very diverse. You Learned, it was like you learned every, like you said you learned everything that you can possibly learn about society living in that area that's fantastic so that's so what got you what intrigued you about the music industry uh nothing <laughs> Uh, I went to school and I, when I was graduating from high school, I was going to become an architect. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I realized that that required a lot of math. <laughs> and I, I like the design part, but the math part, you know, I kind of went, ah, I don't know about this. So I went into, uh, when I went to Fordham, I majored in finance and, and minored in marketing. And I thought that gave me the best shot of really having some kind of career where I could, you know, feed my family. Right. Um, so when I started going down, uh, I got to the 
senior year and they had what they call career day. Mm -hmm. And so all those companies come into the campus and you interview, Hey, my name is Joe. And here's my transcript. And you know, you go through the 20,000 questions they ask you. Well, RCA was one of those companies that came in, but you got to remember RCA at that point, it was a conglomerate. Right. So it was Banquet Foods, Carnet Carpet. It was the computer division. It was NBC and a little known division called the record division. So I interviewed with the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. I interviewed with GE and then RCA. And GE had me take the train into New Jersey because that's where their campus was. And I interviewed with them, uh, but they really wanted somebody with an MBA. And obviously, I don't know where they brought me in there. I didn't have an MBA. I just right. graduated from college. <laughs> I don't, I'll go. I'll go. I get, you know, free room and board and a dinner. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go with this whole thing. Then RCA, they had the guy from the record division. His name was Dave Wells, and he was the head of accounting. Mm -hmm. And he was probably in his 50s. And I mean, I was a punk kid, you know, I mean, growing up in New York, you got an attitude to a certain degree. And so we were talking and he really seemed to like me and I liked him too. And then he said, well, do you know about the record division? And I said to him, well, what do you do? Store records somewhere? You know, because I didn't know there was a record division. He said, wow. you don't own any RCA records? And I thought, Motown, no, you know, I've got Warners, Electra. I mean, I was Perry Como. It was, uh, you know, classical. It was show tunes and Elvis Presley. And I kind of went, well, none of that is my jam. I mean, I don't know what to tell you, but, you know. <laughs> And he said, well, he said, why don't you, you know, would you be interested in working for us? And, you know, I said, okay, tell me more. And I went over and visited the, the office over there on 1133 Avenue Americas and uh, really liked the operation. They offered me a job and I started in June of, uh, let me think here for a second, 1971. Wow. Yeah, I know you weren't born, so don't be a smart ass. <laughs> I wasn't even thought of yet. <laughs> 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 wow, that's great. It's amazing how one person can instantaneously change your life and, and, and change the direction of your life. Um, I find that to be very, very intriguing because that's happened, that kind of happened with me. I had no plans to be in the music industry at all. I was going to school to be a teacher. And Drunk Marcus went to a Kenny Chesney show and <laughs> <laughs> someone I asked for backstage passes. Someone said, no, but you should be an intern. Get out of here. <laughs> okay, three months later, I'm an intern. <laughs> that's great. Um, so what was your first position in RCA? I worked in budget analysis. Uh, basically, I was responsible for meeting with all the department heads and going through their their budgets, really. And I worked, my first office was basically an elevator shaft. I mean, it really was. You walked in there and it bumped up against the elevator. So there was a column, my desk, and you couldn't put a chair in there. I mean, so anybody <laughs> that came in had a stand. Oh and nobody really God. came to see me at that point. Nobody really gave a shit. You know I mean? It's right. Like, What's the kid over there? What's his name? I I don't know. I, oh, I don't know if he'll be God. here in six months or so. Ba so basically, you're telling me you didn't become an architect because you hated math, and then you went into a position at RCA that had nothing but math. But it was a different kind of math. <laughs> two plus two plus four. I got that part. <laughs> it was the geometry part <laughs> that I was having problems with isosceles. And, 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 uh, I was so, good on the other part. That's crazy. So, what year did you move into Nashville? I moved to Nashville in '74. '74. So three years later, you're in. Nashville and we know how Nashville is nowadays. Everyone knows that Nashville is this like melting pot. There's, there's, we call people who are from here unicorns because you very rarely meet them. People who are born and raised here. Everyone that's coming from LA, everyone's coming from Atlanta, New York. How was the time different or what was it more accepting or more resentful when a New Yorker comes in and 
and he heads up RCA Nashville. So in 74, I would tell you I was in uh, surrounded by unicorns because most people were from Nashville. I mean, right. it was a family business. I worked for Bradley, right. who had three generations of people. Roger Sovine, his dad was Red Sovine. I mean, you know, everybody in there, lots of families and lots of people. They all went to school together. They all went to church together. And here comes this kid from New York. And it was like, and so when I got down here, there really was a, a I mean, this is going to sound ridiculous, but there was a suspicion uh, because they thought I was down from New York. I mean, we still had the Civil War to a certain degree, North and right. South. Right. Seriously. Right. Um, I mean, I had some really interesting periods there where they thought I had been, I was a spy from New York. And one day somebody told me that. And I said, well, what the shit am I going to spy on? You guys are like a pimple <laughs> or an elephant's ass. Nobody cares about this format. I mean, I've been in New York for three years. We never spoke about you, you know, and wow. and I knew the numbers, you know, and it was like, so anyhow, after a period of time, people became a little less suspicious that I wasn't down there trying to learn anything. I actually was there trying to help right. because I knew what was going on in New York and I could help them kind of get access to the things that we were doing in New York. And I had context in all the, the departments. So, you know, as opposed to just being, we were more an A&R Air, uh, operation than we were a full line record company. I mean, we had mostly producers. We had a few promotion people and that was pretty much it. Wow. So and, and Marcus, I'll tell you too, that was again, growing up in New York in that, that atmosphere, it, it, it was more than the UN. I, I was on trains in the subway with mm-hmm. every nationality, every different color. I, I just, that's the way I grew up. When I came in the South, it was a real awakening about the differences. Right. Stark for right. me. And I'm going, right. what the hell? I mean, this is not 1940 or 50 or 60. Right. I mean, you know, we, so it was a little more difficult for a guy from New York coming in. And um, it took me a while to kind of understand the nuances, not that you accept it, but you just kind of see what the hell's going on at that point. And then little by little, I was able to show them that I could help them. And when I added value to the operation, people became more trusting. It's amazing how that works. It's kind of, that's kind of, that's kind of how the industry is. It's amazing how that, that's how it was then. And that's how kind of how, how it is now. It's like, absolutely. And I've said this before to someone, uh, music industry is tough to get into, but once you get into it and everyone sees the value of you being into it, yeah. you're, you're kind of, I wouldn't say stuck because I feel like stuck is a negative word, but uh, you're, you're kind of, you're in that circle and you're, you're locked in. Yeah. You, know, you, you would forever have those connections um, because you, you've shown your value. So that's kind of crazy how that's still back then, even then that's still the same way now. Yeah. So let's talk about here. Your fir- who was the first artist you signed as the head of artist? See in Nashville? Uh, that would have been 1980, 81. So it was the Alabama. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the follow-up was a young lady named Gus Harden, which she was a great singer, but crazy as ball get out. <laughs> Didn't quite work. We had one hit and that was it. Um, there was somebody else that I signed and I cannot remember. And then I pivoted and I wound up signing the Judds. And, you know, when the Judds happened back and forth between Alabama, what we were doing, it was kind of like, oh, maybe this kid can hear. Right. You know, and, uh, you know, at that point, I was lucky enough to be working with Waylon and Dolly and Millsap, too, right. because of Jerry and Chet had signed them and they were still on the roster. Right. And we were crossing records over left and right. And so, you know, nine to five, you know, I mean, that was a huge record and here you come again and you know all the Ronnie Millsap crossovers and Whalen you know all the stuff we went through Jerry I mean 
mean, we just kept crossing records over. And that was one of the hallmarks of my operation, because, again, I knew the guys from New York. So I was able so to work with able them. to work with them. That, that, and there's the value. There's the value. Yeah. So I want you to tell me because because um, this is going to tie into something I'm going to ask you about later on. Uh, but I want you to tell me the pitch the day that Alabama came into your office. And I think Del Morris was their manager. Am I That's correct? correct. And um, he pitched you this group. Well, let's back up. We went to a showcase and okay. it was the country radio seminar. Okay. And Alabama was on that showcase. Leon Everett, uh, Juice Newton. There were three other acts. And uh, I came back and told Jerry Bradley, I saw them the night that night and said, these guys came in and played an acoustic set, basically, is what they did. And the room went nuts. And so Dale came in the next maybe three days later, and he was with a guy named Larry McBride because they were on Larry McBride's production company and label. Okay. So they we were... We were buying masters from a small label to come to the big label. And so, you know, there there really wasn't a pitch. It was a deal. You know, Dale Dale had enough sense to go RCA Records. I mean, Dolly, Ronnie, you know, Charlie Pride, Waylon Jennings, Jerry Reed. Yeah, it sounds like a good idea. Mm-hmm. So we just negotiated a deal. But the problem was that Larry McBride, because Dale was the manager, but Larry owned the, owned the label that okay. the boys were signed to. Wow. See, now that's something I didn't know at all. Because I've heard the stories about Dale and, and Alabama uh, and things like that. So it's like I've never heard. I never knew the fact that they were signed to a production deal prior to. Yeah. M- MDJ Records. Wow. So what was your idea? Because you heard them, you saw them. What was your idea? Did you have an idea on, wh- on what you were going to do with them when yeah. you signed up? What, yeah. what was I mean, your game plan with was, uh, One of the first shows, the first full show I went to was in Myrtle Beach, and they were supposed to open up for Jimmy Buffett. And so when I got there, um, Greg Fowler, who was their road manager, mm-hmm. um, said we were, Granny and I were going out visiting all the record stores, because that's what you did at that point, radio stations and records for as you went in person and saw them. And um, um, when we got back to the venue, it was a theater. Uh, uh, Greg said to Randy, he said, we're not opening, we're closing. He said, Buffett knows what's going on here and doesn't want to go through this nonsense. So that was my first show with them. I mean, I'd seen them at the CRS, but I hadn't seen them. I hadn't seen them. So when we got through that that show, I went back to Nashville, got my team together and said, we're going to do a tour of rock and roll clubs. We're going to take these guys out into only rock and roll rooms around LA, in New York, in Chicago, the bottom line in New York, the whiskey in LA. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to bring in, again, the pop people that I know, the country people who haven't seen Alabama, really. And we're going to do six showcases and we'll bring in press and everybody else. And um, that was based on the first album and a little bit of what they had been doing down at the Bowery. So, I mean, they they had an unbelievable set and they were unbelievable musicians at the same time. And um, by mixing that vibe, you know, you weren't just a, at that point, country Western was the term. Right. You weren't that, you know, you were, you were more viable than that. So we started planting seeds early on for Alabama. We didn't cross on the first record. We crossed on the second record. But that was the setup for everybody. And the country guys had never been to things like the whiskey or the bottom line. 
Right. So they were kind of, whoa, you know, this is kind of cool. It's not just a, a club. I mean, it was a legendary music club. Um, so we did that and that launched the band. And then, you know, Dale made sure that when Alabama went out, they had production, which was not usual for those acts, you know, backdrops and, and you know, monitor. I mean, you know, most people just went out and they played, you know, they had a little drum riser emblem and that was about it. I've heard a story. I heard a story once uh, about Del Morris and Del. It was basically Del was talking to someone and Del asked the question, well, how the hell can we get Alabama to make the amount of money that Aerosmith was having per show? Which led to the tour, from what I've been told, and again, I don't know, this is all hearsay, um, which led to the, the Charlie Daniels and Alabama tour that went on. And he and then from that point forward, he just blew, he, the, the whole entire team, just, they just blew up. Yeah. But, Blew up and, and it ended up being one, if not the biggest male group in country music still today. Um, so let's transition there from that point. Then you went from them and then you went to the Juts. Did you have the, obviously every every story to success is different, you know? So what was your game plan with the Juts? Well, I was in LA staying at a, a, a- a place called La Park, and uh, the, the guy that was responsible for AR for Curb Productions is a guy named Dick Whitehouse. He just passed away the last year or so. Mm-hmm. And he and I have been trying to do business. We just, we liked each other, but he never had the act that I was excited about. And so on his way out, he played me a couple of things and he said, you know, when you get back to Nashville, I want to play you this mother and daughter. And I said, mother and daughter? He said, yeah. I said, do you have anything? He says, I got a really crappy uh, work demo. I said, okay. And so he pulled out a cassette and I had my Walkman. Right. So I put my, you know, put the cassette for, in. For those of you who don't know what, what a Walkman is, this is what they put. <laughs> it's basically, it's, like a, you know, it's, it's an MP3 player from back in the day. Yeah, I used exactly. to have one too. <laughs> so he put them in and I listened to it and I just went, man, I love this. I said, I'll be back in Nashville on Friday. Can you get them in on Monday? And so why and uh, Naomi came in sang three songs. Uh, they left. Um, I called their attorney, who was John Mason at the time, right after they left. And we negotiated a deal that day. And then I found them because they had gone over to Old Charlie's, which used to be off of West End. Right. And I found them and I got in there, bought a bottle of champagne and said, welcome to RCA. And it was that quick. And they were signed to Curb Productions. So Curb Productions furnished us right. the music. But we were involved with every part of it. Wow. And with the Judds, what we did was we rented out studios. Okay. So we went into studios. And again, most people have not been in recording studios. So we went around the country, found recording studios. And, you know, the girls would play. And I mean, it was, you know, I was 16 years old. She was getting her braces off, for Christ's sake. You know, it was it was magic. I mean, Brent Mayer made unbelievable album, I mean, music. And we found great songs. And it just, it all came together. And their first tour they went out with Ricky Skaggs and Ricky Skaggs was smoking at that point. And it was a fer- perfect match because they had that acoustic sound to them. Right. And uh, they just, from that point forward, it was just a straight shot. So <clears throat> I'm noticing a trend here. So back then, was it that mainly everyone had production deals back then? No, actually, um, I would probably say maybe a quarter of them did. Okay. Um, but the rest of the acts that I signed, very few of them had production deals at that point. It just happened to be that Alabama, be. and then we bought Alabama out right. um, of that deal. And then the Judds would continue to be on curb productions, which proved to be a problem down the road. But um, 
that was pretty much it. Every while there's one other one to Earl Thomas Colley much later on, but again, we bought them out. Gotcha. Okay, because yeah, because you don't you don't hear much about the, about the production deals nowadays, mm-hmm. um, if any. Um, so <clears throat> we, we're we're circling around this topic and to- with with Alabama and with Judds and the topic that. I really want to talk to you about is called it's artist development because I'm noticing, and I don't know if you notice it, um, it just in my opinion, I'm not saying this is the truth. This is just my opinion, people, but I feel as though labels nowadays are kind of struggling with artist development um, a little bit. Like I've, for a while there was people, there was labels just signing people who had the biggest following already before becoming, a, you know, assigned artists to a major label. Um, Back then, you guys just went around. You guys went to the bars. You guys went out. You would showcase things like that. Um, that doesn't happen much nowadays, you know, because we 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 look at YouTube. We look at yeah, social media, especially in COVID. Especially in COVID, yeah. So, um, how is it? Do you think that that is? Do you, are you? I wouldn't say in the Greeks, but do you do you have the, the same kind of pain as far as the art artist development today on how it's different different from? back then because wasn't the key back then mainly just developing the artists from scratch yeah i mean you know i think there's pluses and minuses to both sides mm-hmm. um first of all there's the a part the artist part and then there's the r part which is the repertoire part mm-hmm. i think sometimes what you have today is the focus not on the artist part but on the repertoire where a song or a clip causes reaction and in order to really successfully build you have to you know it's almost like the washing machine routine rinse and repeat you've got to keep coming back with a hit keep coming back with a hit and and it's not just the fact that you score on the charts because this mm-hmm. format is really good about not letting things die i mean we have more number one records in this format than any other format wow i mean any other format and it, it's only changed probably in the last seven or eight years because when I was running the label, it was not unusual to stick a record up at the top of the charts for seven or eight weeks at number one. But it would be when the sun goes down. It would be when, where were you when the world stopped turning? It would be, you know, um, remember when, I mean, whatever it was, you know, Carrie Underwood, you know, Jesus take the wheel before right. he che- Those records stayed because they were selling. Right. Today, we don't have that hurdle to want to support you just kind of go okay you got yours you rang the bell next guy and so we have this endless jukebox of number ones where people don't have the familiarity with is that truly a hit or is that just a song that somebody liked for the moment and i think that's the difference on the artist development side and the other part was when i ran the label and we had our imprints we had a total of um six or seven acts topped so maximum we carried was 21 labels here today will carry 28 32 that's a lot of plates to juggle and when everybody and and one other thing too that i'll say and this is probably not going to be popular with a lot of people but people today get signed because they are they think they're artists and writers and the reality is they're probably artists but not writers and just because we have six people in the room and I contributed part of the song doesn't mean mm-hmm. that I'm a writer. Right. You know, and I think that's so you wind up with a sameness because we're also gathering groups to write together as opposed to what we used to do when we were when we were building an album in, in back in the day, we were filling out slots based on the persona of the artist. 
mm-hmm. you know, and you were really looking for things that touched them and they weren't written necessarily by them. Sometimes they were, but you can look at people like Faith Hill, Reba McIntyre, Martina McBride. They didn't write. Right. Uh, they seem to have pretty good careers over the course of time. And Tim McGraw is one. He's, I don't think he's ever written a song. Well, straight. Yeah. He didn't write. You know, Alan Jackson did. And he would also find outside material because he would come back. And I remember sitting in the room and he'd go, I couldn't write that. And he picked it. Kenny Chesney, same thing. He wrote, but I never argued with Kenny Chesney about that's my song. We're putting that out. He always went with the best song. Always. And I think that's what it comes down to is that to me, when country was really and people are going to take issue with this. To me, when country was really mainstream is when people were talking about things like five o'clock somewhere when the sun goes down. You know, well, it's five o'clock somewhere. It became part of the vernacular. Mm. And I don't know that we're there today. We're having hits. Right. We're streaming. But it's kind of like you're streaming in your neighborhood. You're not streaming in your city. And I think that that's the difference between when you look at records that are coming from other formats, there are bigger conversation pieces, you know, and it can go anything from WAP to, you know, Olivia Rodrigo, you know, and you go, damn, and it's conversational. Not saying it's all good. Right. It's It's conversational. Do you think that that's the, do you think that this is part of the reason as to why a lot of country artists start to collaborate or try to collaborate with different pop artists to make yeah. themselves, to make the songs more mainstream and to get to, to become well, that. I think it's a dual purpose, Marcus. One yeah. is it's a, you're gaming the system. And I mean, the pop acts and hip hop acts, especially. Right. And mastered this. And I, all we're doing is stealing their idea going, okay, how do I get more streams? I don't necessarily know that you're going to be considered a star in that format. Mm-hmm. It's like Morgan Whalen and Dua Lipa. Well, I mean, I don't see that tour. Now, right. did, did, did he actually get some help from that record? Yeah, but it's not like you can do 15 of those. Right. You know, that's a right. color in a song. It doesn't mean that that's your career. Right. And, you know, Kenny was doing that early on when we went through everything from Cracker to Kid Rock over right. to Dave Matthews. He would find those interesting combinations. And I think that's part of what we've done all along, but it was more organic than it was tactical, you know, where you sit down and go, okay, how do I get over there? You know, it's like the first time Marin did the commercial for Target. Well, several other people were asked before her and they passed. It worked for her. She did an unbelievable job. It opened up a lane for her and she's been able to follow it up. So for her, it worked. Other people, not so much, you know, it just, yeah, I don't know how you come back on it again. And that's the other thing too, is that you have to have a base. I think that's part of the issue with the artist development. What is, what is your home? If, you, if you're a pop act, then you've got a pop base. And then if Ed Sheeran does something with uh, Bruno Mars, which he has, well, then it can be pop to a certain degree. It might be, you know, whatever the term is today in terms of the urban format right, that's right, acceptable. Right. It, could, it, could, it could sit there for a period of time. Not that Ed's going to keep coming back to it, but they can go back and forth and it's legitimate because they both feel good about the song and what they've done music. And, you know, we've had artists where, you know, Faith has a hit, then she goes and makes a pop out. You had a hit song. You're not a pop act. Mm. You know, it's like you come in here today and you're up against Ariana Grande, Adele. Yeah. You know, Beyonce. I mean, you're going to go in that league. You're going to have your shit together. 
<laughs> and you can't take what we do because that's what they call a crossover. Right. It comes from one place and goes to another place, but it doesn't, you don't do that on a regular basis. Uh, I mean, no matter how successful I have been in my career with the artists that we've had, and we've had a lot of crossovers, it's not every album. It may be every other album. It may be every third album. But mm-hmm. I think right now we're enamored with how do we increase this, this, you know, our streaming numbers and by getting other people in other formats to collaborate. Mm-hmm. Now, someone like Kane to me, that's organic. Right. You know, he figures out, you know, OK, Khalid and he are buds and it works. Right. Right. I'm all for that. But when you, you kind of try to get in there and you shoehorn yourself, you know, the, I think the audience sees through that. They may like the tune, but it doesn't mean that you're a fan. Right. Right. There's there's, there's a song right now. I'm not going to say, but there's a song right now that I, I question the collaboration idea for it. I get to do, you know, people are friends and things like that. But it's like, as you say, you, you can't force it. It has to be organic. And I, and I right. think you, like you people, people will see that, that it's not that it sounds forced and it doesn't sound organic. And that could mean that the song could just because the song could become successful because they're fans and they're big acts. But at the same time, the song may not be a hit or or something that someone wants to hear or something that someone wants to remember happen because it just wasn't an organic song. It wasn't an organic idea. It needs to fit your brand. And I mean, an example of that today is Ellie King and uh, Miranda Lambert, uh, I'm drunk and don't want to go home. God, I love that song. <laughs> so you listen to that, but that that is Miranda. Right. And that is L. So you kind of go, okay, this works really well. Now, does it work pop? Does it work country? We'll find that out. But when I see it and hear it, I believe it. Yes. You know, and so that's that's important not to sit there and kind of just go, well, I checked the box. I did this. I got some airplay over here. And now, you know, my spins are up because at the end of the day, you know, you can get that for the moment. But then you come right back down to the other level Mm -hmm. because you don't have that support. People aren't going to come over to your column and stay with you because it's just they're visiting for the moment. You know, they're not going to be there. They don't become true fans. You know, we go through and we talk about streaming numbers and you say, well, I've got 100 million streams. Well, that by that definition, every time you go out on the road, there should be 25,000 people at your shows. <laughs> they should all show up, right? And that was, you know, that was the running, that was the running joke for social media when we, when labels and things were looking, and managers were looking for people with the social media numbers and everybody was paying for the followers and paying for the likes. And it's like, well, if you go to your show, is 10 people going to show up or is 15,000 people going to show that you have following? So it's like, it's 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 crazy how things are that way. Well, the other thing, too, is, you know, we all resist the idea of us becoming our parents. Mm-hmm. But the question I have is right now, we're so focused on those numbers. So if you jump forward to a, somebody that's 18 years old and just lives on social media and all they have is time, you jump forward 10, 15 years. Now they become a parent. They got two kids and a job. And a wife. What happens to those social media habits? What happens to their media habits? Are they exactly the same as they are now? Or do they morph? Because the problem they have is they don't have time. And social media and everything else takes time. So is that social media less about following artists and more about following my friend Marcus? Because we got a relationship. Right. And I, but I can only do 10 or 15 of those folks. I can't do the 150 I used to do before. I can't be on every single site because I don't have all that goddamn time. Now, and I don't know what the answer is, but I do believe that what is today we consider to be absolute 
will change. It will be different than what it is for my generation, Mm -hmm. and it will be different for the generation that follows you. But each of them will iterate to a certain degree, and the behavior won't be as pure because the trade-off is time when you're young, money when you're older, and responsibility. Right. So I I don't know how it works, but it will be interesting to see how it goes. So just following that, because we're so enamored with youth, we want to follow that, and I get it. I get it from a marketing standpoint, but going back to your original conversation or point about artist development, I don't necessarily know that that always translates into really building an act that that can get a series of hits and then also entertain. Because at the end of the day, you need to be able to do that. Uh, And there's some artists today that have some series of hits just cannot entertain. And it happens. It happens. You know, it's Um, like watching paint dry. (laughs) I have fallen asleep at some of those artists. (laughs) Yeah. And I've signed some of those people and you go, man, they make great records, but we can't get any traction beyond that. Why? Because they're bored. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, and I think personality wise, falls into that category. I think that some people might have, you know, if you have a boring personality, then it's like you get on that stage, you're not really that entertaining because that's just who you are. Right. And, and that's understandable. So when you talk, you mentioned streaming in, in that, in that topic, do you, do you think streaming is, has it, has it been beneficial or has it been harmful to the industry? I think it's been beneficial in the sense that you now have music globally and we would have never had that before. So if, wow. if you're on, let's just say you're on a, the award show mm-hmm. and we're, because we go around the, the world on the award show and all of a sudden you see somebody and you go, Carly Pierce, I like that. Well, I can instantly go through on my Spotify account or my Apple music account and check out more before. Well, how do I do that? Well, hell, I walk down to my record store or I go on, you know, <laughs> Apple Music at that point for a digital file. You know, I'm going to download something and maybe you have a problem finding it. You know, it's just it's a different it, it allows everything to be ubiquitous, which is great. Mm-hmm. But that still comes back down to the point you and I were just discussing. When you check them out, are they interesting from a personality standpoint, from an entertainment standpoint, or is it just the song? How, I mean, if you think about the playlist that you've got, I know on my own playlist. Yeah, I, I probably have half of those things are songs that I like, but I don't care about the artist. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, I'm looking. At, I'm I, I'm seeing it in my head, and you're absolutely right. Yeah, I, so I, I mean, it's just about the artist, but I but I love that one song. I you know, yeah. and that's yeah, you're right. And the ones that I do love and see that they're on there as well, but but there are those few little ones. And and that's where you come back to the artist development, the ability for that artist to keep your interest grow and grow. And every once in a while, change it up where you go, wow, that's different. I didn't expect that. And I'm I'm interested in that. That was a night. Or sometimes you go, oh, that was that was a bridge too far for me. You you need to come on back. a little Right. You know, but you don't know that until you try. And that's part of being an artist. You know, you have to be able to explore that. If you're making the same record, one of the things I was told a long time ago when we got to the end of Alabama's career and we were still making what I considered really great music is I was talking to some of the radio guys and they said, you know, we got 20 of their songs in gold. You can hear Alabama all day long. Tell me what's so different about this one than the other 20 hits you got. And it was like, okay, 
because I think it's good doesn't mean that everybody else says right. it's that different. And so you reach that point, you know, I mean, you, every artist gets there. You kind of go, OK, I've got enough of that. Who do, who do you think nowadays we're going to use, we're, we'll use artists, current, the big current artists nowadays that has been able to constantly pivot to adapt and, and constantly change their sound over time and keep the longevity? I think Miranda Lambert has done that. I think Eric Church has done that. I think Stapleton has done that. Um, I'm trying to run through the people at the top of the charts. A lot of the other ones like Luke Combs, it's, it's too soon. It's too soon for Luke. You right. know, Thomas Rhett, it's, you know, I can see Thomas growing and he needs a little more time to be able to explore because, you know, we're on that cycle in this format. Sometimes you're putting out records too quickly. Right. And that's the other part of the Nashville system is we do come with music frequently and it takes so long to get through the system. Sometimes you have that streaming streaming pool where people want more and more and more right. and the radio pool that says not so fast. But, you know, I think there's probably a half a dozen of them. Um, I think Marin on the bones, it was a great record. It was a great record. And so, you know, I think that's where you go. Well, I didn't expect that from you. And and then that shows growth to me. I think Kane has done that. I tell you who I I think if we go along to the big ones, I, I I think that Keith Urban has, has constantly, constantly just kept going into a different realm. And it's like, Wait a minute! You're not you're you're the same person who does you know who wouldn't want to be me and somebody like you, but you're also the person who has Julia Michaels and and Pink, Pink and Pink on a song, but you stay, but you've mastered the out the ability to stay you and stay in your lane and just tiptoe over here to come back. Yeah, and, and the other thing too is Keith is one of those guys that Keith will if he gets bored he'll play the song on piano as opposed yes. to guitar. Yes, you know and you go. You know, and I mean, I always I've told him a long time ago, I love watching him play because you feel everything he's playing. Yes. And I, I've, I've had friends tell me, they, well, I don't like going because he just stands and plays the guitar. I'm like, no, but it's the feeling. And you can feel yeah. like and artists talk about the adrenaline that's on stage. They feel. But when you have someone like a Kitty Chesley, someone like Miranda Lambert, someone like a Chris Stapleton, you can feel that energy yeah. from them coming off, which it just it's a back and forth thing in concerts. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. A long time ago, I had a guy named Steve Stout working for me when I was in New York. Mm-hmm. And Steve has gone on to build a branding agency in, you know, um, all the clients he has around the country. And, and so he was our hip hop guy at that point. Mm-hmm. And he, he went to a show with me and it was a country show. And he said to me, he said, you know, I haven't been around a lot of country music. He said, but what I like about this is the stories. Mm-hmm. I get that. And, you know, I've seen Steve probably half a dozen times since we split up 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I always remember that comment because I think that's where we connect with people. When people really feel those stories. Right. But when it's just a group of folks coming together to rhyme and get a groove, it's not the same, you know? And I mean, you obviously you've, you've been listening to it for a long time, but you know, the difference between, you, you know what I'm talking about. Yep. So I don't have yep. to go and explain it. Yep. Yep. I, I do. I do. Now I want to, cause we're going we're gonna to be wrapping up here soon, but I, I want to talk to you. I can't, I can't have you on here and not talk to you about Kenny Chesney because the guy has between him and Tim McGraw, they've, they've changed my life. Um, their music is what put me into country music, but maybe we want to go work in country music. Let's talk about the struggle of Kenny Chesney first, because Kenny, Kenny had hits, you know, before yeah. he, before the no shoes, no shirt, 
No Problems album and the Greatest Hits album, Kenny had hits. But Kenny, for some reason, just wasn't as big as, in my opinion, he should have been. So what was the, what do you think the issue was between that period and the time that the blow up happened? So going back to when we, we, he was on Capricorn Records. Yeah. And so again, here comes the Dale Morris connection. So Dale Morris calls me and says, I've got, I was in New York running the labels up there. I was planning on coming back. And he said, I heard you come back. He said, I got this artist named Kenny Chesney. He said, you've been interested in signing him. And I said, who the shit is Kenny Chesney? So he aired, he air freighted an album to me and it was the Capricorn record. And um, I mean, it was just pure country. And I looked at this guy with the mullet, you know, on the little hat, uh, the cowboy hat on. And, and I kind of went, OK. And so he was one of those guys that I never met before I signed him. I just liked the record and did it because wow. of Dale. Uh, and we bought the masters back from Capricorn. And it took a while. Kenny thought he was George Strait, you know, and he he loves George Strait. There's no reason not to. Right. But he was going down that path. And uh, we had a meeting because we had we'd have a hit and then we'd kind of mid chart. I mean, when I have a hit, we'd have a top 10, top five, number one. Mm -hmm. And the next single would come out. We'd go to top 40. And then, you know, we were doing the zigzag thing. Right. Each album we put out would pick up, we'd go from 100,000 units to 175, 250. But, you know, it was a long, we were three albums in. Right. I was getting older. Right. You know, it was kind of like, we got to get this shit going here, guys. <laughs> and so we had a meeting. We did the ACM show and his, uh, myself and Clint met with him and basically said, you got to figure this out because we got George Strait. So where, where are you going to be? And we also told him that his band, who he had been extremely loyal to and Kenny is that way to a fault With he everybody. is everybody i don't care who it is that that's what makes him such a great guy like, right from show business you're sitting there going these guys look like they're over the hill and you're this young guy and you got this young sound and it doesn't mix visually he got really pissed off walked out of the room and then when we saw him again it was the cutoff t-shirts the eagles the whole thing got into fitness and figured it out and so then we had how forever feels and that changed everything. Then everybody began to see him. And then he heard what was going to become his sound. You know, it was going to be that a little bit of the beach and a little bit of small town country. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to put these sounds together. So that's the vision. And so when we made albums, it was those two themes came through. What would happen in a small town that you would relate to? You know, young, you know, you know, there goes my life. Everybody goes, you know, they send their kids. I mean, all of them, we go when the sun goes down. And, and that mix related to lots of people's lives. You know, you were sending kids off to school or you were still grown up yourself or you were in college. I mean, all that kind of work. But then he saw himself and he became a student. He went out and played with everybody from George Jones to Alabama when he didn't have to. He just wanted to learn. What did you do to get this crowd going? He'd stand on the side of the stage. Then he went out and he saw every rock and roll show across the country. U2, the Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen. What do they do? How do they get that crowd up? And so Kenny took all this in and then he kind of mixed it up and made it into Kenny Chesney. So you get that energy. The energy is really important. The physicality is really important. Entertaining is really important. Productions, you won't know where I'm coming in from. Am I coming from the sky below? What's going on? Surprise, surprise, surprise. And you are my people. You're my no-shoes nation. And so he built that. That was to me the beginning of an internet following. 
I mean, you know, people, yeah. there was chatter on him long before we had Instagram and Facebook. You know, it was kind of like, man, have you heard about this guy? And that's what I got as an experience when we signed Dave Matthews. Dave Matthews was all about cassettes going back and forth in dorm rooms. He would allow people to tape his music. And then that's how he got popular. You know, people want, oh, you know, I'm in Virginia and I go to Florida or I go to New York and go, What's that cassette you're playing? It's Dave Matthews. And he built the same thing that Kenny was. And they became friends because his manager, Corin Capshaw, used to go down the islands. So he met Kenny. And then, you know, you kind of hook up. Again, the connections in the music business. But And Kenny always was great. We never fought about music. I mean, I've been with that guy. I signed him in 94. So, you know, here we are almost 30 years later and never fought. Never thought about music. It would always be Kenny, man. Come on, we can do better than that. Or he goes, he come in and I just go, oh my God, where did you find that? You know, and it's just, he has song sense. That's, uh, it's crazy because he's actually the reason why I went and looked you up because when he got, it was your year, you retired. You had just announced your retirement and he had won Entertainment of the Year that year. Yeah. And he got up there and he was coming. It was, he was tearing up saying thank you to you. And really, really couldn't get the words out because it was just getting so emotional. And you can tell, and I'm like, in my mind, I went, who is this guy he's thinking? Who, who, like, like, I need to meet this guy because that is, this guy has discovered. I'm a person who I like to see, I like to see where things come from. I like to, I like to hear the original and the origins of things. And, well, and that was- I'll my- tell you this, Marcus, when I announced that I was stepping down from Sony, I got a phone call from Kenny right after it started to go out. And he called and he said, I love you. He said, you and I are going to be in the business for a long time to come. And to this day, we are still together in ventures. And it's about the music and it's about the rum. And his manager, Clint Hyam and I, we're in business together. I mean, that's a friendship partnership that we have been together ever since because you learn you like people and you trust people. And there's never been, I mean, I said it the other day when we did an interview, I, I never doubt that they've got my back and I know they never doubt that I've got their back. And it's just, it's that simple. You know, it's, it was always transparent. We were honest with each other. If I didn't agree, and I mean, there are times I pissed him off by telling him what I thought. And then he'd come back and say to me, I get your point. I just don't like the way you said that. You know? <laughs> and you go, fair enough. I get it. You know, and so, you, but it was always give and take. And it was his ability. He knew, I'll, I'll shut up after this. He would come in and work the label. He would come into, we had three labels there. He knew everybody that was in the label on all three staffs, knew the artists, would come, even when he was selling out, he'd come in and hang in the building. And so everybody loved the guy. And when we went for number one, you had three staffs going, you got to, you got to help that Kenny Chesney guy out. He understood, and I guess it's sports teamwork. You know, people wow. forget that they don't understand. You got to put your 10,000 hours in. You got to care about people. You got to be honest with them. And, you know, they'll, they'll get that. And to this day, I think he's he's one of those shining examples of you're not going to hear anybody go, what a pain in the ass. I mean, when he was on the road, he remembers those guys that wouldn't give him production on the road as an opening act. And when he went on the road, everybody got everything. They were tra- yellow people. You treat them the right way. They're not a piece of crap. They're on my tour. They're part of this family. And so everybody loved touring with him because he treated them the right way. Wow. You know, and, and, but, and he's not the only guy that does that. 
But when he did it, he set the example for other people to follow. Everyone else do it. Yeah, I know. I know there was some artists who's like, oh, you know, tell, we'll tell the opening acts, oh, you can't use a catwalk. What? You're restricting my performance from using a catwalk? What? That's right. Like, are you like? And I, I don't want to say insecure, but it's like, are you when you do when artists do that? Or is it a lack of confidence that or don't want to? the open act to outshine them on their own tour? I think it's a, it's a combination of factors depending on the act. Okay. But Kenny wasn't worried about that. Kenny wasn't he worried kept, about it. Was, the side screens were his. The main screen behind you, you could have. The catwalk, you could have. But everything else, when I come out, that's got to have all that sound and right. flash. Right. And, and it was like, well, that's a lot more than you got if you just going out and just got the stage and that's it. Right. Wow. Wow. So, so who were you? Inter- I got to ask before we. Ha- uh, so who did you intern for? I well, I interned for a radio station in Philadelphia. We're intern for XTU. Uh, is who was I, the program director there at that? Mark Ratz. Oh my god! And he was he was the interim program director, and then it was Shelly Easton. Shelly Easton. And now Mark Ratz is the program director now there. Um, but um, it's crazy because I also work for Nat- Natalie Connor as well. And she was on the CMA board and things like that. So that that's how I got my start. And I moved down here and went to college. So the rest was Yeah, bad. Natalie was no bullshit. She was great. She was no bullshit completely. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yeah, I loved her. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and she, Shelly too. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, they were my, like three of my favorite people. Like they were, I love them to death. I still talk to Raz uh, and I still keep talking to Shelly Easton. Um, Natalie, yeah, I will. I will. Um, so I have been told that you had a collection and the collection was Wailing Jennings quotes. <laughs> so my question is what, well, my second to last question is what was your favorite Wailing Jennings quote? I'm going to paraphrase. He did an interview and basically it's a lot of what we've been talking about. He's, he basically said, if you're doing this for the money, you're doing it for the wrong reason. You got to do because you care about the music and you care about your fans. Mm. And I always remember that. My favorite quote from him is life is not a dress rehearsal. You only get one shot. (laughs) (laughs) No, that line in the song too. If I know I was going to live this long, I would take it better care of myself. (laughs) We got into, there's a, you know, the mellow mushroom pizza places on West end. Yeah. 21st. Yeah. Yeah. We were back there playing pinball one night and some cowboy got in there and got really nasty and he started knocking and got a little aggressive with Whalen. I don't think he knew who the hell he was. And if he did, he didn't really give a shit. And uh, he started pushing him. So, you know, a couple of us got over there, but Whalen just went, hey, Hoss. He said, I've never won a fight in my goddamn life. He said, if you want to go, I'll go. But I think the odds are in my favor. You know, and I was like, <laughs> that, is, that is the quote. <laughs> It was great. <laughs> that is the quote. Uh, one more thing. If you had to give any advice to any artist, any any person who wants to be in this industry for anything possible, what is the advice you want to give to them? Listen, you know, I mean, I think you really do. You need to listen to your fans. You need to listen to people that have the expertise. Doesn't mean you have to follow everything everybody's saying, but you need to listen. I mean, I haven't met anybody that knows everything. I'm st- every day I still learn. And the, and the time that you give up on learning and you think you got it all, that's the time you should get the hell out. Wow. This has been fantastic. This has been an honor. I'm so happy I got to put you on this show. 
Um, I would love to get together when everything is everything. Is yeah, finished. I'd love to too, man. I'd love to get together, have a drink. We need to make this happen. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. This Marcus, it's so my good. pleasure. I really enjoyed it. I, I looked up and went, "Holy shit!" I, so did Thumbs I. Up. <laughs> Thumbs up, man. Thank All you. Right. you take Thank care. You. Have well. a good one, sir. Okay. Bye bye. All right.